Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joy Christopoulos. Today is a reaction pod to Long Gone Summer, the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. And today we're bringing on some Northsiders here to talk about and react to the pod that just aired last night on ESPN. First, his nickname was the Golden Bull. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Graves, everyone. How are you? I'm doing good, doing good on this fine Monday. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. Another guy who's always in his happy place, who's happy with his life, doesn't want to talk about anything else other than the fact that he's happy. Mike Choi! Joey, I am not here to talk about the past. I'm here to talk <laughs> about the positive and not the negative about this issue. And finally, he once pierced his nipples because 106 other ballplayers were doing it. Dom Fortini, what's up, man? Long-time listener, second-time contributor. <laughs> okay, you guys, so we are going to... Uh, Let's just break down and let's react this piece. I think the great way to start with it is let's not review necessarily the documentary as a whole, but let's just start with, I think, a bit of a surprising aspect of, well, maybe it is surprising, maybe it isn't so surprising. And let's just kind of start with this Cubs-Cards rivalry because as we begin watching this documentary, you really begin to see that this is going to be coming from a bit of a St. Louis angle. Now, Mark McGuire hit the most home runs that season, so perhaps he gets the larger piece of the pie in terms of narrative. But let's just begin there as a Cubs fan and just raise your hand when you're ready about there is a lot of St. Louis uh, influence going on here in the early parts, the opening credits, and a lot of these different transition pieces in the documentary. How'd it make you feel? Sean, hop in. Yeah, you know, I, I I wasn't the biggest fan of that from, like, pulling back, you know, besides McGuire and Sosa. You know, the Cubs had the better team that year. The Cubs were the playoff team that year. How about giving Sosa some love in regard to he was helping a winning team? People were coming to see him at Wrigley, but also because the team was a playoff team. If it wasn't for, you know, McGuire hitting dingers in St. Louis, the Deadheads would have been sitting half empty for most of that season, right? <laughs> So it would have been love to see a little bit more, a little bit more of that, you know, respect given to the team as well. It was a little surprising, right? You were kind of half expecting Ozzy Smith to start doing backflips in the opening <laughs> credits, really. It really start kind of taking you down St. Louis Cardinal memory road, a road that I don't think any of us like to travel down. Uh, and then, you know, of course, like the cliched shots of the Billy Goat Tavern, uh, the Wiener Circle, all the main hot spots. It kind of looked like they sort of Googled up uh, Wrigleyville and Chicago and then just sort of hit those spots real quick to get some B-roll. Uh, Dom, just in general, Cubs-Cards rivalry, we don't have baseball right now. I mean, what did this drum up inside of you in those first, uh, those first four or five minutes of watching this documentary last night? Two minutes in, he shifted in his seat and I couldn't be angrier. However... Uh, just seeing the shots of Wrigley were so great. But like you said, I, I think there was a lot of, like, just token stock footage. Like, they showed the Wrigley board and the empty bleachers, which was awesome because you were like, oh, my gosh, when was the last time I saw this? But, however, as I do with all my stupid Cubs memorabilia at home, like, look at the different things in the picture and try to, like, who were they playing and, and what year was it? And the championship banners were, like, behind the bleachers. So it was fairly recent where they took a lot of that footage. Um, the St. Louis angle didn't really bother me so much. And maybe just because like you said, Big Mac had had the larger total, but uh, I, I want to like, I don't want to say this, but like, I think race had a lot to do with it at the time. I think the country, you know, McGuire being white and playing for a Midwest team uh, certainly was like, Hey, this is, this is the American story. This is the boy from Southern California. He referenced it a couple of times who, who came to the Midwest and, and Sammy may have, um, just gotten the short end of that stick, being Dominican and playing in Chicago. Well, and Mark McGuire like fits the mold, right? This big white Herculean, Boss. yeah, Herculean type person. I mean, and honestly, some of my favorite shots. I mean, not to be a weirdo, but we're kind of those close-ups on the dude's forearms because you just kind of remember how oh, yeah. <laughs> how, sta how stacked and jacked those were. Those were. Uh, let's go to Mike. Mike, I want to ask you this question. Just in general, what what kind of your remem memories as a child of the 98 season and how much of Ken Griffey Jr. do you remember playing a role in this season or did you kind of completely forget that it, he was kind of out of that? He was in that narrative for a very yeah. long time and sort of faded away. It was, yeah, I totally forgot that Ken Griffey was in the picture. And that made me, like, remember the fact that, like, and again, I don't mind this also. I mean, I'm conflicted. I don't mind this being a 
pretty much a St. Louis narrative. The director even admits that, you know, even though he uh, was born in Illinois, he was right on that St. Louis border. So he was a Cardinal fan. So I'm sure that kind of obviously painted his lens on how to. It's the uh, water down this. there. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. But uh, no, to your point, like Sammy didn't really join the conversation that year until June, until he had that barrage of 20 home runs in June. So it really was a McGuire Griffey race until, you know, so, uh, Sosa kind of, uh, you know, uh, entered his name into the fray. Um, you know, it's interesting because like, I think contextually that year was a pretty amazing year because 98 was unfortunately the last championship run for the Bulls. So we were kind of coming off that last dance. Um, I forgot that that was also the year in February that Harry Carey died. So you have this iconic Cubs legend who passed away uh, before the start of that season. And uh, also, like, I totally forgot that, like, you know, the doc made me remember, too, that that was kind of the anointment of Carey Wood being, like, this hopeful savior for the Cubs, you know, his 20K game. And, uh, yeah, and by the way, Carey Wood looks great, man. He looks like he could throw, like, seven innings right now. So props to Carey Wood's uh, uh, workout and diet regimen. But, uh, yeah, man, I totally forgot that Griffey was part of that conversation. And, uh, um, you know, and obviously we're looking at it through a Chicago lens. But, you know, to some extent, I think a lot of it is revisionist history as well because I think a part of that, you know, unfortunately Sammy's kind of, uh, you know, a leper right now, right? Like, for whatever reason – whether it's true or not, he hasn't come clean yet in terms of taking it. So, you know, obviously he's still strangely banned by the organization. So I think a lot of that lens of him kind of becoming a little bit of a villain in, since he's retired probably contributes to kind of his, his, uh, his, his smaller role in the doc as well. Well, and we're definitely going to take the opportunity to dive into that because this is a Chicago podcast. So I think that's something that we're all going to want to kind of ruminate over and discuss. A, what is his legacy? B, what is the appropriate or inappropriate move now moving forward with the Cubs organization in terms of his relationship with Sosa? What I thought was kind of interesting was I get that the doc was two hours, but, you know, and, and I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to go a little bit easy on it because we just watched Last Dance, right? And they gave us 10 hours, right? And we've got quote after quote and moment after moment. And I'll be honest, and we can get into the reviews of this a little bit later. I, I am left a little wanting at times with this documentary because, you know, they do kind of just gloss over this whole concept of the 94 strike happens and, you know, and baseball dies, you know. But I think this home run thing had kind of been building for quite some time. And the funny part about it is that the two figures that ended up in this Chase McGuire and Sosa were never really a part of that conversation. If you go back to 94 – when the 94 strike happened, Frank Thomas, Matt Williams, and Ken Griffey Jr. were all on pace to hit 60-plus home runs that year, in theory, in terms of where they were at that particular time. Cut forward again, I believe Griffey ended up hitting 56 one season. McGuire hit 58 the year before. So it was all kind of – the stage was all kind of being set there. And in 98, you know, we're going to get into this too because the documentary didn't really want to until the very last minute. So let's – just get it out of the way very early. The steroid era was already just flowing through the baseball like a river by 98. They had the, they had the home run derbies on yesterday, and it was the 98 <laughs> home run derby. And, guys, we're talking it, – it's the cream of the crop. We're talking uh, – it was McGuire. It was McGuire and Sosa, right? Griffey was also in it. But then you've got John Jaha. You've got Jeremy Burnett. You had Brady Anderson. You had B.J. Surhoff. Luis Gonzalez. I mean, on and on. These guys that that their bodies just out of nowhere kind of transformed overnight. And I, you know, I was to be honest. I was watching this with my wife, and I want to hear you guys' reaction. To this after maybe like the second segment or the second commercial break, she's just like, "Are they going to talk about this steroids thing or what? Like, what is? Are they not going to bring it up at all? Is this just going to be the, the innocent summer, like the summer of love that time forgot?" And they kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit. I can't tell. Do you think that that was something that they told McGuire and Sosa, like, hey, this is gonna, we're going to be good to you on this if you do this documentary? Or do you think that was a narrative choice to try and keep it contained to that summer? Because, man, it is just an inescapable, like, inescapable mark in terms of what, how that all turned out in the end. Well, I'll jump in. I, I, I think it was a narrative choice. I think, I think the way the filmmaker tried to do it was he tried to play it like, we'll go normal, normal, and then they, the, the journalist finds the can in McGuire's locker, right? And we'll tell it in that narrative kind of story of how it played out. But us kind of looking on it, you know, 22 years later, 
we don't want to wait that long because we know what happened from that point on, what's happened since then in baseball. We know it's this looming huge thing over both of those guys' careers and that whole era in baseball particularly. So it's kind of hard to, like, watch that and say, okay, we'll pretend that this wasn't an issue until, like, June or July when the journalist finds the can of what have you in McGuire's locker. So kind of a tightrope to walk, I guess, from a filmmaker standpoint and maybe just didn't quite pull it off, yeah? Go ahead, Mike. Well, yeah, right, because, I mean, any, anything you would have done in this documentary would have short-shrifted, you know, the, the steroids conversation. I mean, you could do a whole 10-part series just on the steroid issue alone, right? So, obviously, they were – I totally agree with Sean. I think part of it was to kind of keep the narrative to the 98 home run chase and then also, Joey, to your point, kind of probably to get McGuire and Sosa to contribute to the series. It was actually interesting that Griffey didn't – like, there was no interviews with Griffey. So, I think he himself was kind of, like, distancing himself even to this day of being associated with that. But – um. You know, I'm not, I mean, I, I want to ask you guys, like, I, I'm still so conflicted because doing the research, I mean, so Faith Vincent technically kind of outlined in 91 that steroids was was a banned substance. But, you know, they didn't put testing in, in effect until 2003. So this is way after, you know, the 98 race, the, you know, and, and, and they didn't, I don't think until 2004 started implementing penalties for positive testing. So it's this gray area of like, you know, it, so basically it was on the honor code system, whether you took steroids or not. So, I mean, technically, I, I don't know. I mean, if, any, if we've learned anything from the movie School Ties is that the honor system doesn't work, right? It's like <laughs> Matt Damon's not going to admit to cheating unless somebody else comes to the forefront. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so conflicted because also, you know, what do we, when we talk about performance enhancing, I mean, is the juice ball era of these last like five, six years any different? I mean, so... I'm really conflicted. I wonder what your guys' general opinions are of just the whole era of steroids in itself. Well, my recollection at the time was uh, steroids in the NFL, people were starting to get popped for that and starting to get suspended for that. So we all knew that it was wrong. And there were campaigns out there about, you know, don't do drugs, don't do steroids, almost not quite hand in hand. But the, there, was, there was noise out there that I, as a kid, I was kind of aware of that. Dom, I wanted to ask you, you remember 98, as a kid growing up in 98, when the Andro thing came out, do you remember your reaction to it? Because that was something that really carried through the last couple months of the season. And I remember as a kid feeling like it was a scandal, but I don't know if it took hold quite the way that it did when we found out the truth. Yeah, I mean, I think growing up and I mean, I was I think I was like 20, 21 by that season. So like to know what's going on, certainly, but like it almost seems like that at the time was more serious than it was, let's say now, like where if you would find, you know, more or better performance enhancing drugs in a guy's locker. Now you'd be like, Oh my gosh, this guy before it was just like another, something similar to, to creatine. Like he was trying to explain to everybody. And at the time, certainly it was a red flag, but as you worked your way through the season, as, as Mike said, like a lot of this stuff wasn't really known, like, and that's what, you know, that's what the commissioner got up and said, whether they knew it or not. Um, at the time, yeah, it was only whispers. True, they weren't testing for steroids then. So it was almost like the bigger you could get and the more you can get away with, then, you know, good luck to you. Go ahead, Sean. Well, and I think, too, to, to hop on what Mike and Dom are saying is that that whole area, I think from a science standpoint, too, was so murky. Because I remember when this stuff was all coming out at the time, the one big thing that none of us had ever heard of was the creatine. And it just kept getting talked about all of a sudden, like Mark McGuire's taking this creatine. It's in his locker. There it is. You know, now we all know that it's actually a healthy supplement. I'm sure any of us who have lift, with lifted weights in the past couple of years have probably taken some of that. I know I have. I mean, it, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a weird, it's a weird thing that, like, that was such a big deal back in the, the late 90s compared to what some things are now, you know? And I guess my question for you guys, because there is philosophical differences, right? And if you're going to pick your poison in this game as a fan, would you rather have your athlete taking something that would help him recover and perform at his best on a day-to-day -day basis? Or would you rather have a baseball that perhaps is modified to aid the said banged up player? Um, you know, we can all we can get into back and forth like the health aspects of of whatever he is taking. Obviously, whatever he's taking has to be done in moderation, right? I mean, they're we're still trying to find out the side effects and the long term effects of health, but there are plenty of different methods and ways to 
to take different kinds of stuff to help yourself recover physically. I mean, what what's different and what's worse, right? Because I mean, the NBA moved their three point a lot, three point line around a whole bunch. You know what I mean? What's the difference between that and a juice ball? In my opinion, I mean, you know, what would you what would you what would you prefer to have? Your athletes at a hundred percent, or a ball that's helping the ball maybe fly out of the ballpark a little bit for a guy who's not a hundred percent? Or Mike, go ahead, and then Sean. Well, I mean, and also too, I mean, just once again to put it in context, like. You know, I, obviously, I don't know the exact exact dates, but like that '90s period was the wild, wild west of supplements, right? Like that was really the beginning of like sports science in terms of like supplementation. So it's like you know, and you know, and doing all the research too. It's like some of the stuff didn't even work. You know, they would put all these claims of what it did, but it didn't. You know, didn't necessarily contribute to anything. So it's kind of like, you know, I think players, you know, whether it's you know professional athletes or you know gym uh, heroes, like you know, we're taking stuff not necessarily knowing what it can do or what it contribute much less if it should be legal, if it should be banned, you know, all those things. But, you know, to your point, Joey, about like, you know, the philosophy behind it, like, you know, again, like if we were talking like track and field, if we were talking weightlifting, I can understand where like steroids is like, Oh, that's a no, no. And I'm by no means am I advocating taking steroids, but I guess to me philosophically, like hitting is a skill, you know, and although you can't take away physicality especially for a home run hitter it's still a skill like I mean even to this day there's only been three players that have eclipsed 60 home runs even in this quote-unquote steroid uh, uh, era so I mean yeah I mean I guess it comes down to philosophy but like you know like I you know to hit you still gotta you know maintain that skill regardless of how, how big or not your biceps get you know yeah and I blame the 1991 film Universal Soldier with Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren for really uh wetting the appetite of what the American athlete could possibly do Sean did you want to want to add anything oh yeah well I, I would I would blame Rocky IV and Stallone for that but uh wow, yeah. no, those you know. those Russian machines <laughs> right you know what I mean uh, no but just jumping into kind of what Mike said too is it, it was such a murky time and, and to differentiate between like live ball era today and taking a, a supplement then it's really hard to do because the bottom line is if you're affecting the game, you're affecting the game. You know, that live ball era is, is killing pitchers today with the home runs the same way it did someone popping juice back in the day. But also if you're a fan of baseball and you think stuff like this wasn't going on back to what sixties, fifties. I mean, when Mickey Mantle would go out for one of his legendary nights, come in the next day, hungover is all shit you think he wasn't popping greenies popping amphetamines i mean how is how is that any different right if i'm a pitcher i want to face the hungover sluggish mickey man not the one who's perked up wide-eyed ready to go because he just popped some greenies in the locker room yeah go ahead dom uh the player failure it seems like if you're if you have a player who's using steroids it's a failure on their part if you have a whole sport that's juicing a baseball it's the sports failure so they're going to need they're going to need to come up with something, you know, to get over this little hump that they're on right now. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do, I, I, but I'd almost not rather know about baseball cheating. Like I, I could blame a player. Um, you know, if you're trying to get to the next level, if you're trying to get paid, if you feel like everybody else is that those are three quick, solid excuses that a, a ball player might use, but, but baseball to do it like, that would just be soul crushing to me. <laughs> like, different, different areas. Yeah. Different areas of desperation, right. Where the actual, yeah. like the actual brand of baseball itself is trying to nudge and give a player an advantage. When I mean, look at Mark, Mag- like Mark McGuire's career is basically the test case of why you would do steroids, right? Like you get drafted, you have an amazing rookie season, hit 49 home runs, According to McGuire, which I believe he felt like his entire career was kind of built around that home run. And after two or three seasons, you kind of start breaking down. You have all sorts of injuries in your heel. And obviously at that time, he's getting more and more jacked. So we can also talk about whether those injuries were caused by steroid use. But it's really this whole concept of a player that could have been great, got injured, and then began using to get through those injuries and then gave us these several Hall of Fame worthy seasons. So it's like, I don't know if it's the tree falling in the woods argument, but, you know, would you have rather have had this Mark McGuire that we have now flawed, but still has these moments of excellence that we can actually see and touch or do the whole man, Mark McGuire, 
that, man, he could have been a ball player, right? If it wasn't for those injuries, man, he really would have been something. And that really kind of crystallizes the dilemma I think a lot of these athletes go through, right? I mean, we're not talking Barry Bonds here who's just pissed off that everyone else is, you know, everyone else is getting the limelight and he's not. I think yeah. for players maybe like the Maguire, Maguire definitely could have been and almost been, you know, he, he, he could have been a could have been. Um, but he wasn't because he took those steroids and, and came to St. Louis and obviously was able to have those great seasons. Go ahead, Mike. Well, the ironic thing, too, is, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be getting my science incorrect, but, like, I think, right, the whole theory behind the steroids, or at least what they use as, as an explanation, was that it aided in recovery. So to me, it's ironic because I think what we know of steroids today is actually it breaks you down a little bit quicker. I mean, you gain that mass, but actually – I don't know if injury prone is the right word, but it's actually, it's actually not necessarily about, you know, recovery in terms of like, especially in the course of a grueling baseball season. So I, I might be wrong about that, but there's also been a lot of, uh, there's also been a lot of interesting science and studies that have done. And the one that I read most recently, and I'm paraphrasing because I'm kind of coming up, up with it off the top of my head was they're starting to also believe that steroids helps out with, um, you know, your, your focus, your acuity to focus. Uh, it helps out with your reaction time. And they actually said that in one, in the particular places like McGuire's forearms, steroids can actually help out in that particular area. And for baseball hitters, your twitch is coming from your wrists. And the fact that you can be able to turn out, you know, turn over that wrist as you're following through, they people also think that that has something to do a little bit with how these players were able to, you know, send the ball as far as they were. Now, granted, then you get the pushback of, and I'm a believer of this, is it's hard to hit a baseball, right? That sweet spot is very, very, very tiny. That ball is coming in very, very, very hard. And don't think that these guys around 96, 97, 98, you know, I mean, we were bringing in Kyle Farnsworth in the seventh and eighth inning, and he was pumping 98. You know what I mean? So that era started too as well. So the game, you know, everything got harder. You know, the balls start flying out a lot farther. And, you know, it, it is funny, you know, watching those home run derbies, these guys are just hitting these, like, beautiful moonshots like these nine irons like deep 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 into the sky and then you kind of watch it now with launch angle and the modern game it's a little bit more of like a line drive mentality like it's a completely different swing in a different way that they're kind of playing I, I I really think it's kind of an interesting thing especially when you add the whole juice ball aspect in there too as well go ahead Dom one of the things that I found interesting watching the whole thing is I was watching with my wife the first time, who obviously isn't as nutjob crazy as I am about the Cubs. But in a lot of the footage that was shown of McGuire, he was always – he was a big boy. Like, and I'm not trying to defend Mark McGuire here, but he He's was six, always – he was, he was all, I mean, but even amongst the guys on his team, his teammates, you know, you see the one guy and you're just like, who is that? Someone like Mark McGuire or Glenn Allen Hill, just someone with just huge size where you're like, oh my gosh, the, you know, the bat looked like a toothpick in his hand. So, I mean, you could, you could make the argument he was on whatever he was on, but, but he was always, he was always a hoss. He was always hitting home runs. Um, and that was really interesting to see. And she was noting that early on. Cause I was like, you know, at least with Sammy and his old baseball cards, the guy looks like me. I mean, you know, buck 50 tops. And then you get to you get to these later years and, and he got a different thick than the rest of his teammates. Well, and you'd like to think that, you know, maybe there is a scenario where, you know, anabolic steroids were helping McGuire just get on the field and then McGuire's talent was doing the rest, right? If you go back and you look at the 96 home run derby, you know, McGuire used to have that crouch, he used to be kind of a crouch hitter. It wasn't quite Jeff Bagwell style, but he had his knees in a crouch and he had a completely different batting stance. When he moved over to St. Louis, you saw he got a little more upright, which helped him get a little bit more lift on the ball mm -hmm. and obviously probably helped him get a few more balls in the air. Uh, Sean, did you want to jump in? I was going to say, to, to piggyback off what Dom said, like, look at the footage they showed of McGuire's rookie year. Like, of course, he's 6'5", but he wasn't some, you know, yoked up dude like he was later in his career. And he still did 49 bombs as a rookie. So, I mean, I, th I think it's just like he himself said in the doc, like he was put on this earth to hit home runs regardless. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think the final point we're going to probably put on McGuire before we move over to slamming Sammy is honestly that season, the consistency, really incredible. I mean, the little stuff that you forget that, you know, he hit a home run in his first four games. He had 36 RBIs in that first month of that season. He absolutely torched uh, that September. Uh, so here's what he, so here's what he did by month that season. He hit 11 home runs 
16 home runs, 10 home runs, eight home runs, 10 home runs. And then in September hit 15 home runs and slugged 902 in September. And then in those final three games, he's sitting on 66 and then pops four home runs in the last two games. Just honestly, just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, uh, an end-to-end incredible season. Uh, Dom, hop in. Well, like he said early on, you know, he had, which I thought was a fantastic story, one of the better stories of the whole documentary was that he put, you know, expectations on himself and in a piece of paper and put it in a safe and then looked at it at the end to kind of, you know, judge himself on it. But like you said, that consistency month by month, he said to do that, you know, I'd, I'd have to be in the realm of somewhere around 10 home runs a month and, Sure enough, and he even talked about the you know the sluggish month of eight. He talked about the dog days of baseball. It's starting to get hot in St. Louis. You're wearing down in the Midwest, and I mean just to go like to go through the whole year like that, stud. Ten months in a ten home runs in a month is insane. I mean that's that's a monster month, and he's like, oh, I just need to average that. Go ahead, Mike. Well, to echo uh, Dom's point, man, like seeing Sosa in his rookie year with the White Sox, much less his first year with the Cubs, like it is night and day from what he looks like, you know, in, in that stretch run where he had like those, those 10 seasons of like 35 plus home runs. Um, and, but there's so many different factors. Like the thing that I also didn't realize, cause I kind of touched on it. 98 was uh, an expansion year. So that was the year that the devil rays and then the uh, diamondbacks entered the league. So again, right there, like pitching was diluted throughout the league. You know, they had the expansion draft. So, I mean, there were so many different factors. So to just kind of say that this was like steroid induces, I mean, again, you can't ever take that away, but it's like, there were so many different factors that contributed to, you know, you know, such a, uh, such a great home run race that year. Yeah. Mark McGuire in 1998 slash line 299, 470, 752 slugging. 70 home runs, 147 RBIs, 21 doubles, legging them out, legging out those doubles, 162 walks, 130 runs scored. He slugged 788 at home and then followed it up that 99 season by hitting 278, slugging 697 with 65 home runs, 147 uh, runs batted in. And here's probably my favorite stat about him is in 98 and 99, McGuire hit 75 home runs in St. Louis at Bush Stadium in two seasons, which is just absolutely, I mean, like, so if you're, you know, what, season ticket holder, you're going to 140 games, and McGuire hits 75 home runs during that time, uh, I yeah. think your ticket's, your ticket's getting cashed right there. Yeah. And in that 99 season, actually, he got off to a really slow start and hit 40 home runs over his final 76 games, which is typically kind of the watermark for all-star break. And I think he had 37 and 98 at the break, but he had 40 in the second half of 99. Um, I mean, pretty incredible dude. A lot of injuries, but still 583 career home runs, 588 career slugging. Go ahead, Choi. I definitely don't want to make this a Mark McGuire podcast, but like, yeah, (laughs) looking at his numbers, man, like he holds the record for home runs at bat at 10.6. So every 10th at bat, this guy hit a home run, which is like crazy. And the other thing that, like, we forget, too, is, like, basically that 98 year was McGuire's first full year with the Cards um, because, you know, he got traded, I think, in July-ish of the year previous. So, I mean, like, just all this, like, expectation of him coming in right out from, you know, the gate to, like, kind of do what he did. It's like, it's still, it's crazy. All right. Let's put down the Big Mac. We're going to switch over to Sammy Sosa. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is, as is every week, they've been with us every step of the way at betonline.ag. There's no shortage of action going on with your exclusive partner, betonline.ag and sports. Hey, guys, they're slowly coming back. It's not that far away. We just got to hang in there a little bit longer. But guess what already is back? Golf, UFC, boxing, and NASCAR. A little bit of soccer, too, as well. They're all leading the way at betonline.ag, and they've got the best lines and odds for all these upcoming games and matches. So if you're looking for something other than sports, there's more than that, too, as well. There's live casino games, poker tournaments, and all the best props in the business. So visit betonline.ag. Use our mobile device device, and join now to receive your welcome bonus and start playing today. BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. Crushed that read, guys. I just crushed it. <laughs> Keep it going here on the uh, Long Gone Summer Reaction Pot here on Believe Betting Chicago with Joey Christopoulos and with Dom Fortini, Mike Choi, and Sean Graves. Guys, let's get into Slam and Sammy. And um, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on what were your – what were your memories or general thoughts of Sammy Sosa prior 
to the 1998 season. What can you kind of remember about the type of player he was? Were you a big fan? I mean, the Cubs were terrible at the time. But uh, you guys remember, give me, can you guys give me a scouting report on Sammy Sosa pre-98? Go, go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, unfortunately, I, I really can't give you because, you know, I grew up in Tennessee and Memphis, and I was still down there at that point. And before 98, like you said, because the Cubs were so bad, you know, you, you'd come home from school in the afternoon and throw WG on and GN on and catch a couple of innings. But Sosa wasn't really a guy before 98 that was super on my radar. He just really wasn't. So I, I probably thought of him more as a kind of like a 30-30 type guy like he had done previously, not some I'm going to go out and hit 70 bombs this year type player. Yeah, that's very fair. Dom, what do you remember? Terrible defender. Just an awful, awful defender. And, and, and maybe this is – yeah, this is where I'm going to get rolling here. I mean, I do have, I do have some good points that, that I, will, I will certainly give him the nod. But he was a guy – I remember He's, him. Dom, Miss, real quick, is now standing and pacing. Uh, <laughs> the sweat is pouring down. I've literally been drinking since like eight this morning. Uh, just, you can't hit a cutoff, man. He was never a great defender. It was never about his defense. And, and as a baseball fan, that drives me crazy when guys do that. When, when you know, just give me some sort of lick of defense at all. And I, I could be happy for your offense, but not a guy who is just not going to take it seriously out there. You can run with your little flag and play with the right field people. That's fine. You, you might as well be Milton Bradley out there for all I care. Uh, Mike, what were your, what were your pre 98 memories of Sammy Sosa? Don is going to hate me because I was literally about to say the enthusiasm of him running out to right field, going to hop every home the run fervor. And blowing, the, blowing the kisses. So, but yeah, you know, I think, to, to, to echo Dom's, Dom's point, I think, and again, and, you know, it's kind of we've always had the sense whether it's true or not that like these players from Latin America kind of they, they had to be about themselves. They had to be about hitting. It wasn't necessarily about the fundamentals because they knew to make an impact in the big leagues. It was whether it was to be an offensive player. Right. Like everything else was kind of secondary. So I think he embodied that uh, for good or bad that like he was all about me. Um, you know, he's very like self-centered. He wanted to be the center of attention, but I, at least for me, like it was always kind of like done in this enthusiastic, positive way. But, um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. To, in terms of what I thought of him. Yeah. I thought of him at least offensively as an all around player, you know, as Sean mentioned, like, right. I mean, he got traded to the Cubs in 92 and I think that 93 years. So basically right off the, uh, right out of the gate, he hit 30, 30 for the Cubs. So I, I saw him as this like, like Ken Griffey light, at least offensively. Um, and then, you know, obviously he kind of just concentrated on the power side of things. Yeah. Pre pre 98 Sosa for me was uh, Zach Levine. Basically where we're at, where we're at with Zach Levine right now is pretty much how I felt about Sammy Sosa. I'll never forget when he was on the white Sox, um, talented player, couldn't really hit, but really fast, had a crazy cannon for an arm. And the Sox kind of had to get rid of him because, well, they got George Bell, but they had Lance, one dog, Johnson in the outfield and everything. And I remember the first couple of games he was on the Cubs, he was playing center field. I'll never forget, he fielded a single uh, from out there, and he was trying to gun a guy down at home. And I'll never forget, he threw a ball, like, major league style, so wildly high <laughs> and off and, like, hit the back of the screen. And I was like, ooh, this might be a work in progress. And, you know, the Cubs were terrible. And Sammy, you know, would hit a couple home runs here and there. I'll never forget he had 40 that one year, and then he got hit in the hand and broke his hand, and we never know how many he'll hit that one particular year. But, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of a guy like, you know, not a lot of substance, didn't really ever help the team win per se, but was putting up stats and was kind of interesting. And then in 98 just completely just revolutionized his game and turned into took it to a completely different level. Go ahead, Sean. Well, to kind of go back to what Mike said about, you know, like, kind of the Latin American players, like that's kind of a theme you've heard from several Dominican players is that we hit our way off the island, right? They, they don't have that mindset of like, I'm going to throw a guy out at home and get off the island. It's like, no, I'm going up here. I'm going to swing the bat. And that's how I'm going to get from here to the States, into the big leagues and make money. So it's kind of that mentality. I'm sure. And Sammy loved having that mentality, you know? And then to be fair, he became, a pretty incredible hitter. I mean, his coverage was fantastic. Now, you know, was he, uh, was he like the godfather of Javi Baez chasing sliders uh, down and away consistently? And on, were there some days where he was going to K three times in a row and you, nothing you could do about it? Sure. 
but his play coverage definitely got a lot better. And I mean, if you look at the RBIs during that time, the RBIs kind of don't lie, right? You can always have home runs, but when you're driving in 140, 150, some 160, some season, I mean, that means that you're still getting it done in other situations. Go ahead, Sean. Well, I don't know if anyone heard last week, they had the, uh, a local station here had the Cubs hitting coach on from that point. And he said he kind of, he went to Sammy in between 97 and 98 and he talked to him about what kind of player he wanted to be. And he was like, you know, you've only made one all-star game. And if you want to, you want to make more, the road goes through Atlanta because the Braves are dominating at that time. And Bobby Cox is picking all the players. He's like, so every time you see the Braves and he threw his stats out against like Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz and they were awful. So he really kind of used those numbers and plate discipline in that spring training of 98 and the summer before that to work with Sammy about using the whole plate and coverage and not just being a power hitter, but actually being a guy that could hit the baseball for average as well. I mean, he still struck out 170 times a year, but, but, but you see it in the stats where his walks per year, you know, he went from like 60 to 70 to 90 by then in that, those prime years, he was, you know, getting over a hundred walks a game. Um, and I think it's ready. I think it's time. I think it's time to play a little trivia, guys. Um, it's, we're just going to do one. But I think this stat uh, says everything you need to know. So if you've listened to the podcast before, uh, thank you for listening, uh, first off. But my big thing is, and this is what 98 was really kind of about for me and obviously extended for several years, was when you'd go to Wrigley Field, you'd walk in, you'd get the peanuts, you'd get the program. You would take your seat. It was a beautiful day. It was in the early afternoon. Chances were the Cubs were going to lose. But you had to get there on time because there was a huge chance that Sammy was going to hit one out in the first inning. And it was that whole vibe of Wrigley. That would always get the crowd kind of pumped up. That would get the old style flowing. And for those next six, seven innings, you know, the Cubs fan would dubiously think that they had a shot. So my trivia question for you is from – 1998 to 2004, how many home runs did Sammy Sosa hit in the first inning of games? Oh. oh. In the first inning. First inning. Now, this isn't just – obviously, this isn't just at home, but you have to imagine that a lot of these were also happening at home. In just over under? High, right? Yeah, yeah. It's – it's 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 pretty it's pretty impressive. So this is a seven year span. Seven year. I'll say seventy two. Okay, seventy two. Mike, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go the over on a hundred. So a hundred plus. A hundred plus, Dom. I'm definitely going under a hundred. I was thinking, I even under Sean's maybe fifty ish somewhere in there. Fifty ish. Sean, seventy three. Ooh. 73 winner winner so, chicken dinner so just to be clear so just to be clear that's 10.4 first inning home runs a season so chances are if you went to go see sammy sosa play once out of every what 10 11 games he was hitting a ball out of the ballpark in the very first inning in 2001 He's, he hit 16 first-inning home runs. And 16 – oh, I'm sorry. He hit 18 first-inning home runs. 16 of those came at home. So he wow. hit 16 first-inning home runs at Wrigley Field that year, which means that he had a 20% chance – season ticket holders. Every time you went to Wrigley Field, you had a 20% chance of seeing Sammy hit a home run in the first inning, not just in general, in just the first inning. So every 4.9 home games – so if you went to a homestand, there's chances that Sammy was going to hit a ball in the first inning to get your game going off on a good route. And for me, like, that's the kind of stuff that I really remember about Sammy, right? Like, the first inning home run, the kisses, the sprints, the, 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 the kisses to Dom. Uh, Dom having his heart heartbroken. It's not that I don't appreciate the enthusiasm because it, that, that does bring an enjoyable sense of the game. It, it was just – it was way too much. So let me get, let me get this clear. It bothered you at the time, or now looking back, it 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 bothers you more than it probably did back then. Oh, both. I yes. mean, I'm still. I mean, little. Last night we were maybe a minute and a half, two minutes into that documentary, and they show him, you know, sitting in the chair, and he's he's fixing his hair, and you know, chatting with everybody. And I was just like, look at this guy. Look at this freaking cheater, just making himself at home on my money. <laughs> 
must be nice, man. Must be nice. Uh, Mike, were you going to, were you going to hop in? Well, I was just, the thing too, that's amazing is that like, you know, we kind of, we pinpoint that 98 season, but like Sammy, like at least from the power numbers, like he did this over a 10 year stretch plus, I mean, he, I think what he's, he's like the fifth all time, fifth or sixth all time in home runs, you know, or at least, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, only like one of like five players that have hit 600 plus home runs, uh, who coincidentally McGuire is not one of those players who hit over 600 home runs. I mean, um, he's got like some, he's got crazy records. He, you know, he's, he's one of, only a handful of players that have hit a home run against every team in the major leagues, including the Cubs who coincidentally hit it off of Jason Marquis, who was wearing 21 at the time that he hit it off of Jason Marquis. So that's, that's kind of ironic, but yeah, like he, it, it, you know, it wasn't just like this flash in the pan three, four year period. I mean, again, like right out of the gate in 93, he started hitting 30 plus home runs and did it for like the next, you know, 10 to 12 years. So, yeah. 13 I mean, to 14 seasons with 20 plus home runs to finish up his career. Go ahead, Dom. Okay, so just to show you that I wasn't going to come in here super angry at him, <laughs> 98 to 2004, 332 home runs. He had 35-plus home runs from 1995 to 2004. That's filthy. That's disgusting numbers. That, that's, that's crazy good. It's unbelievable. Go ahead, Sean. Well, and he's the only player, I believe, in baseball history that has, what, three seasons of 60 or more homers, right? Yes. Yeah, and he did a three, he did a three out of four years, and I was just going to bring up you know, we talk about 98 um, as being this incredible season. I mean, his 2001 season is quite possibly, arguably, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Major League Baseball seasons that you're ever going to have. Slash line, 328, 437, 737. He hit 64 home runs. He drove in 160 runs. He walked 116 times. He had five triples and 34 doubles, which means he had 103 extra base hits, which trust me, guys, if you look that up, is completely unheard of. If you get over 90 extra base hits in a season, it is an all-time elite mecca uh, category to get into. He, he got over the century mark to 103. That season, he slugged 765 at home, hit 34 home runs and 85 RBIs in 79 home games. In August, he hit 17 home runs and slugged 936. And then in the post, and then after the all-star break, post all-star break that season, hit 35 home runs, 77 RBIs in 76 games, and hit 344 with 780, uh, 785 slugging. And then here's my favorite one. That season, he hit like 465 against left-handed hitters. He hit a home run off a lefty, one out of every seven at-bats against a lefty. Wow. And in the seventh inning of games, he batted 433 with a 970 slugging and 10 home runs. So answer me, riddle me this. How many of those home runs, those 10 home runs come like right after the seventh inning stretch? You know what I mean? This dude's <laughs> oh, yeah. putting up numbers and he's doing them in these, these quintessential Wrigley moments. You know what I mean? Like that first inning and that seventh inning, those are huge, huge, huge moments when you're going the Wrigleyville experience. And this dude is popping home runs on the regular all the time. It's just really, it's just really incredible. Go ahead, Sean. Well, yeah, and the, you know, I think the most incredible out of all those stats you read, it, it, hearing a guy get 160-plus RBIs, like, you just don't see that in today's game because guys don't hit with runners in scoring position for the most part. I mean, if you get a guy that gets, what, 120 RBIs, he's probably winning the MVP. So to know that guys are getting a buck 60, a buck 50, a buck 70 when it comes to RBIs, insane stat. Well, Chris Bryant won an MVP, only driving in 103, right? Was that what you're gonna say, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I was literally about to say, like, when you talk about Chris Bryant, and like, yeah, he's hitting 30 plus home runs, but only driving him like 80, 90 runs. Yeah. So yeah, that's the perfect. I, yeah, like that actually more indicative of of how you contribute than the home runs. But the other thing that's crazy is Sosa has three seasons of 60 plus home runs, so that's a season more than McGuire. So actually, so like you know, we talk about McGuire. Sosa has the most 60 home run seasons in baseball history. And the funny thing is the two years that he led the league in home runs were not any of those 60 home run seasons, which is actually crazy. He did well, it like in, with in, in 2001 when he hit those 64, Bonds hit 73. Mm -hmm. yep. So, so there you go with that. Go ahead, Dom. Yeah. And just a personal story in 1998, 
I was so sick of him striking out all the time that I literally started a Sammy Sosa strikeout fund at my house. $171 later, I bought myself a Cubs bullpen coat. So I just, I want to get it out there on record. Like, I really appreciate him. That was my first Cubs bullpen coat, and I've been a believer in those ever since. And then that next year, you got those great double pane Felco windows uh, you were saving up for. <laughs> True <laughs> link fence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we've got a little bit more time left, but I definitely want to get into the bigger picture. And we'll start it off kind of like this, and then we're going to wrap into more of the modern day today. And if there's a way, okay, and if there's a way, we've probably got a couple more minutes here. So the authenticity of all this, right? Now, I think we're all, we're not going to go around and say whether this counts and what records you, and all this other kinds of stuff. But I think my question for you guys is, of all those guys, and it could be Sosa McGuire, it could be someone else, who do you think, if you took away all the suspicion of the juice and thought that they were all authentically playing on a level playing field, who do you actually think would have had the best shot at breaking 62? Is there a particular player in your head? Go ahead, Sean. I mean, between those two, I would say McGuire for sure. I mean, a couple other guys from that time, like, I mean, I think – Ken Griffey Jr. was a guy for sure could probably have ultimately done it. Another guy that, you know, just from like his size alone, and I'm always surprised his name, he didn't get closer was, uh, was uh, big Frank from the White Sox. Like, you know, I mean, that, that guy, again, like McGuire built to hit home runs. And I don't think he ever got quite towards like 60, 61. Those are a few guys from the time I would have said, I would have said for sure. But between McGuire and Sosa, I mean, going back to rookie year, 49 home runs, McGuire was, for sure, the better of those two. Yeah, Dom, what do you think? That's really – it's it, for me, like, okay, Griffey was probably – everybody could say Griffey. He had the best swing. The problem was I don't think Griffey was built that to, to withstand 162 games hitting bombs like that. Just going over some guys from the 90s, it's even hard to pick out dudes that might do that because you've got, okay, Griffey and Big Mac, Fred McGriff, steroids, Gary Sheffield, steroids, Juan Gonzalez, steroids, Albert Bell, steroids, Bagwell, steroids, Frank Thomas, as a Cubs fan, I'm saying steroids. Larry, Walker, <laughs> Larry Walker played, played a lot of that back half in, in Colorado. That could have been a possibility as well. But, I mean, he played the first half in Montreal. That, that killed that. I mean, yeah. I, Mike, who do you think? Well, I mean, for me, like, there, there's also the distinction of guys who are home run hitters and hitters who hit home runs, right? So, like, for instance, like McGuire – um, you know, and even more recently, like, I think Adam Dunn, like, literally said, like, you know, when he was on the Sox, like, you know, you, you don't pay me to hit the doubles, you pay me to hit the home runs, and you never really did it for the Sox, but, you know, there's the <laughs> mentality of, like, you know, I'm a home run hitter versus a guy like Griffey, who is just a complete hitter, who also hit home runs. Um, I think the name that really gets lost, like, I, I was looking at uh, Albert Pools, man. Like he, he's still active and I think he's top 10 in all time home runs. So, and there's a guy who very Maguire esque like body. Um, if he, you know, that, that, you know, pools is kind of that to me all around hitter who wasn't just a home run hitter, but hit home runs. So I think yep. that guy, if he focused on, Hey, I just want to bash the ball in the park, probably could have done that as well. And uh, lastly, as a small, small, small dark horse, I think Schwarber could potentially be a guy who could like, if you really just focused on like, man, I just want to hit the ball out of Wrigley at every bat, which he kind of already does. Like, I think he could be a dark horse for it. I've been dumb. I was going to say, I mean, Pujols is the greatest ball player that I've seen in person in my entire life. But, and he, you know, even as a Cardinal, he crushed the Cubs so much. And maybe that's why I enjoy watching him. However, I think his body broke down at one point a little bit faster than we thought it would. I thought he was going to be, you know, the next home run king and he was going to work his way through. And now he's getting paid, you know, $38 million in a strike year. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hit hit 20, 20 home runs and barely run the first man's getting paid. Um, yeah, I was going to go with um, – I always thought Jim Tomey. Jim Tomey probably could have made a good run at it, especially in his prime, like those Cleveland Indian years. Maybe not those Philadelphia Phillies years, but those Cleveland Indian years, he was, he was a monster, and he definitely, I thought, could have gotten close to 60. And there's a part of me that's just, that just still thinks that Bonds was that great of a hitter and was hitting 46, 47 bombs, you know, what, in 93, 94. Um, and never really like exactly had entered his peak yet. So I always kind of wonder and question whether he would have been able to do that. I'm with you on Griffey though, Dom, where I just don't think over 162 game season, I mean, he's an incredible hitter and a beautiful swing. I just don't think 
even with half the games in a dome. He was, yeah, and he was, he wasn't really built like that. He was so streaky too, where he'd pop eight and nine games, you know what I mean, and then kind of disappear for a little bit. Go ahead, Sean. Well, and the thing about Bonds too that was so damn impressive is that he legit, if you remember watching his games, was getting maybe one pitch an entire game that he could actually put the bat on because he was getting walked so much. So that's what I always thought was crazy about that one pitch a game and not missing it. So we've come to it. We got to get out of here in just a second here, but our final thoughts, I want to hear your guys final review on the documentary and will Sammy Sosa should Sammy Sosa be welcomed back to Wrigley field and have his number retired as a Chicago cub. We are going to begin with Mike on the review and whether Sammy should have his number retired at Wrigley. I mean, I think from what he accomplished in his career, yeah, man. I, you know, it, it's just unfortunate that he's still to this day maintaining the stance that like, yeah, I didn't do it, man. I didn't do it. You know, we've seen even with like players like McGuire, even Bonds, even Pete Rose, who got a statue finally erected in front of the stadium, like in 2017, like when you kind of do the apology thing, you kind of regain the good graces of your fan base of the organization. So it's just sad that like, you know, um, yeah, it's just sad that he's still not taking any kind of accountability. Cause I mean, as soon as he does that, whether, whether we agree with it or not, you kind of get welcomed back with open arms. So it's, yeah, it's just sad that he's kind of a, a blimp right now in the Cubs, you know, history and legacy of things. Yeah. There's a part of him that can't bring himself to just do it correctly. If that makes any sense. Um, you know, 90, the 98 Sammy Sosa and the 2004 Sammy Sosa are two completely different players to me. Because by 2004, if you remember, he was bitching about where he was batting in the lineup. He didn't want to hit cleanup anymore. Um, he was having some back issues. Uh, the the boombox story involving Kerry Wood, obviously Kerry Wood, <laughs> and how he felt about him in 98 and what, how their relationship ended in 2004. And let's be real, 2004 was a disastrous season. An epic collapse. Thank you, Latroy Hawkins, at September with, with a team that really was trying to not only uh, avenge what happened the year previous, but take that step forward and go to the World Series. And to have your best player and your iconic player bail out on you in the clubhouse and then really not kind of apologize for it for years and years and, and blame Dusty and say that he asked for permission. And now even to this day, he still does the whole, like, I'm saying, I'm not saying, uh, you know what I mean? Let's just put it this way. I'm happy. Um, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't even do the denial. He doesn't say that I've never taken steroids. He does the whole, well, what everyone, what was everyone else doing at the time? And Hey, look, like that was the past and I'm happy. He does all that stuff. And I think that still hurts him in terms of him being welcomed back to Wrigley. You know, we've, we've moved on without him. It, it's, it's super sad, but it, it's true. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I, I totally forgot too. I wanted to mention this too. Like he kind of has the double whammy because not only does he have the uh, steroid kind of thing looming over his head, but I totally forgot about the cork bat situation with him. So he also has the cork bat, like, like, you know, cheating aspect looming over him. Obviously he said it was just a BP bat that he accidentally <laughs> Of course used, he like, did. Yeah. Of course but he I did. Mean, there's that issue as well that like we have to struggle with in terms of the legitimacy of his numbers. Uh, Sean, your review of the documentary and should Sosa have his number retired? Uh, I think review, I'd probably give it a C just because of the more of a McGuire slant. I wasn't a big fan of all the kind of modern day Chicago footage being added into like the live, but you know, it just, and a lot of times it didn't match up. They would use modern day and try to say it was like 98. So overall, I'd probably give it a C, you know, fun to see baseball on TV and kind of relive that moment, but a C overall. Uh, as far as Sosa, you know, I, I've changed with this over the years. I've lessened my stance. And at this point, I'm kind of all for it. Let's get it home. <laughs> let the guy come home like I, I I can be I can be mad with the way I mean if you would ask me this question in 05 06 07 I would have been like screw him the boom box the way he left all of that but I'm, I'm past it now I mean my stuff with all this the steroids is, is evolving let the kid come home let him throw the first pitch out let him sing the seventh inning stretch retiring the number I'm maybe not quite there yet we'll see but Coming back, let him get a standing ovation, wave, blow some kisses, maybe do an, another run to the right field and wave to Dominic out there in the bleachers. You know, yeah, let's, let's, let's have that moment for him at least. Dom, uh, grade the doc, and should Sosa have his number retired as this a Chicago is, this, Cub? This is why Sean and I don't talk much anymore, his partial <laughs> stance on Sammy Sosa. But certainly, like he said, you know, it was good to see something baseball on TV. I, I'm, some of these late nights are killing me. Um, 
Is he going to make the Hall of Fame? No. Is he going to have his number retired by the organization? Absolutely not. Will eventually, not under the rickets, will he might be able to return? Possibly. But as you mentioned, how does he just sit there and either deny all this stuff or say, like, everybody was doing it? That's no excuse, my man. You know, Pete Rose came clean, and they're not going to let him in the hall till he dies. So good luck, Sammy, because it ain't going to happen. But I will say the electricity he brought to Wrigley Field – the organization, and both these guys brought to baseball, each at bat. I mean, it was must-see TV, and you wanted to see them hit home runs. You wanted to see these guys break the record. Um, however, it's tainted. And the, the, the documentary, it was good. Again, good to see baseball. I was nervous going in. It felt good in the middle, and then at the end just left me with this gross, sick feeling of, oh, man, these guys cheated. And it was, it's, it's awful for a game built on numbers. Yeah, I definitely give the doc probably like a B minus. Definitely missed a lot of aspects. Didn't really focus in on Sammy Sosa's story because, you know, Mark McGuire, great. You were a pitcher and then you went to Southern California College. Like, wow, what a rags to riches story. Like, no offense. You know what I mean? But I think Sammy's Sammy's Sosa's story is probably a lot more um, interesting and a lot more of of a view of how hard you probably have to work uh, to make it to this particular place. And that is the highest point of a professional sport. Um, and then, yeah, the whole idea is, you know, it definitely leaned a lot on the St. Louis side. Didn't really lean in on the mania of Wrigleyville at that time. The fact that the Cubs hadn't been good in nine years. And this was all kind of sort of happening right in front of our face and kind of exploding once more. Like and his then, bat? Just yeah. like his bat. Yeah. yeah. Right. Just that, that corked, the corked past. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And for me with Sammy is that, you know, I'm, I'm a no on the Hall of Fame. I'm a yes on the number eventually being retired. But my whole thing is, and I don't think this is something that I'm wagging my finger at, but, like, just look at what McGuire's done. When McGuire admits that he done steroids, it doesn't necessarily confirm this. It's not this aha moment. It's just basically kind of confirming that the rest of America and the rest of baseball fans are not idiots. We're not dumb. We're not stupid, and our suspicions were correct. And just the fact that you can come out and say that you did that, now we can at least look back upon his career with some sort of uh, reflective knowledge that that was going on, and we can kind of more just look at him as a singular athlete. And, of course, the stats are kind of – the stats are more of a punchline than they are actually more of the point to make anymore. Like, the numbers don't mean shit anymore. But for Sam, if you would just admit that that's what he did, at least we can look at it and be like, wow, that's a hell of a ride. Now it's it's always going to be tainted until he comes out and at least just tells us what exactly happened. Like, you can even – even if he did, like, I only took steroids in 98 – at the very least, you can start moving in your way there. Wow, and just Dom, Dom's breaking and glass. He's just breaking glass and smashing with a hammer on the table. Even if, he ad- even if he admits it, like, I don't know what happens then. Like, then what? Do I just feel good because I was right? Like, what good is that going to do now? Well, at the very least, then you can invite him back to Wrigley, in my opinion. For what? Well, I, think Joe, I, think Joe, <laughs> I think, Joey, you made, a, you made a good point, too, about – what McGuire did and kind of like giving that nod to being like, okay, you people aren't stupid. Yes, I did this where Sosa, you know, he'll say, why are you coming at me when everyone's doing it? So then someone will say, Oh, so you're admitting that you did it. No, no, I never failed a drug test. Well, that doesn't mean anything, but no, no, it, it does. I, I never failed a drug test. Like he just, he can't bring himself to, to just say the truth of, yes, I did this. It was stupid. I mean, McGuire did, and now McGuire's been a hitting coach for several teams. He's in the Cardinals Hall of Fame. He's kind of been walking back into the game to some degree, right? And Sosa's just not going to do it, so he probably won't be. And that is the gone long summer, the long gone summer, (laughs) and it's long gone. Uh, You guys, thank you so much for joining me. Dom Fortini, Mike Choi, Sean Graves, coming in hot for a – Last, uh, for just a quick little reaction here to the 1998 home run chase between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Uh, one word, yes or no, are we getting baseball this year? Sean? Yes. Mike? I don't think so. They can't agree on anything. <laughs> Dom? I would say no, but don't they have to? I don't think they get imposed 50 games. So, <laughs> so sort of, yes. Rob Manfred's going to be uh, just basically uh, p- pushing people out there with a cane. Is that what's more, probably going to happen? More stuffed animal crowds, by the way. 
We'll get uh, baseball, but who knows what the quality of baseball will be. Oh, yeah. We got to find out if we can yeah, get stuffed animals or pictures of ourselves in that Korean League stadium, man. That's we, so we need great, to push yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, and all I got to say is I'm glad the Cubs won a World Series in 016 because uh, let's be real, if it was a 50-game season and they won this year, God, that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> I don't. That's, that's, that's a podcast that I wouldn't need to bring my therapist on with a, with a Zoom meeting there. Thank you so much for joining me, you guys. That was really great. This was Believe in Betting Chicago with Joey Christopoulos. We're coming back with some more great pods this week, so make sure you come back and check out our website. Uh, until then, be safe, be good, and take care. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.